Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in the series, A Life That Pleases God. As we work our way through Hebrews 11, we see examples of those who demonstrated what faith is. First, let's define faith. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for and is the evidence of things we cannot see. What do you think about when you hear the word obedience? A very common theme we find throughout scripture is being faithful to obey through faith. What is keeping you from being obedient to Christ today? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, Faith Obeys God. open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, but also make sure you put that ribbon in Joshua 6. We're going to spend the majority of the time in the book of Joshua. Our example of faith to the end looks not simply at a single individual's faith, but as a nation of people and their faith. Uh, You're going, as we read Hebrews 11.30, you're going to recognize this story. It's a very famous story in the Bible. You'll probably remember from your Sunday school days as a child growing up or from VBS. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, that's a very short verse, but we all know what story we're talking about. And somewhere in Hebrews 11.30 is a commendation of faith. There's something that they did that pleased God. What I want you to notice before we get into the story of Jericho itself is the fact that there's a gigantic gap, isn't there, between the Red Sea crossing in Hebrews 11 and the story of the battle of Jericho. Largely, the Bible has gone through in Hebrews 11 chronologically, hitting all of the major points of faith, leading us up all the way from creation until this point of the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden, we have this giant parentheses where there's no commendation of faith whatsoever. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, this is a large period of time. It's the rest of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Joshua, and God has nothing good to say about the nation of Israel during that period of time. Why? It's because their behavior and how they were living was not worthy of commendation. We're talking about the people immediately after the Red Sea and all the way to the time of Jericho itself. Uh, you know, it's kind of disappointing, you know, my, my family and I, we just watched The Prince of Egypt again recently, that old show, and my daughters love the music, and you can't get them to, not to sing along, but, you know, that's, they love the movie. And as we're watching this, you're just seeing Israel, and they're triumphantly uh, praising God and singing after the, the, God brings the waters down, the horse and rider, God is thrown into the sea, and the Bible, remember last week, he said they, they left the land triumphantly and defiantly, they're excited, hands in the air, cheering on God. God, yay, God, look what he's done for me. And do you know in that very same chapter of Exodus, the very same chapter that talks about their defiantly praising God, jubilantly rejoicing in what the Lord has done, that same chapter, they get out into the wilderness, they come down, they get to their first rest stop to try to get something to drink, they discover the water around us, it's all bitter. What do they do? They immediately start grumbling about the water. And this starts a whole season in a period of just grumble, grumble, grumble. And they grumble against Moses and Aaron. They grumble that they have to eat manna all the time. They grumble that they want to have meat to eat. And they, they just, they're, they're grumbling about their leaders. And uh, this is just a difficult time of disobedience. They grumble about Moses being gone too long. And what do they build? Altar to God? No, a golden calf. They're going to worship the gods of Egypt. We're going to try their gods out for a while. 
And so there are no words of commendation for what God called in Exodus 33, a stiff-necked people. That's how God describes this generation of Israelites from the Red Sea to Jericho's walls. It's a stiff-necked people. You get that term, it's an agricultural term. Uh, if you had an ox, you would hook him up to these implements and he would plow your field and you'd take a sharp stick and you, you're not stabbing him and hurting him, but you would just kind of goad him. You would prod this ox one way or the other. And just this little light tap on the neck this way, this little light tap on the neck this way, and you could get the ox's head to turn one direction or the other following the master's lead. And so where the head goes, the body would follow. And so the idea of being stiff-necked is that you've got this ox and this master wants this ox to plow a field, but he won't do it. He's not going to do it the way you want it anyway. And so he's stiff-necked. You're tapping him on the, on the head, and he's like, nope. He's going he's to remain firm and stubborn. And you tap him again, this ox is going to remain stiff-necked. And God says, that is you as a people. You're stiff-necked. I'm gently prodding you. Go this way, go this way. And you're, you're stiffening up your neck. And you won't follow the Lord. You're disobedient. You're rebellious. You're stubborn. And you're just, you won't listen and follow the Lord in obedience. And so God has no words of condemnation uh, or commendation rather for a stubborn people who won't follow him, who will be disobedient. Numbers chapter 13, they arrive at the promised land. Finally, we're gonna receive the inheritance, the promise of land, seed, and blessing that God promised to Abraham. They go in, before they go in, they send these 12 spies. You remember how that story went? Uh, 10 were bad and two were good. Have you ever seen that song as a kid? You know, and you, we learned that these 10 spies, they went in there and said, oh, we can't take this land. It's full of giants. We'll never do it. Two of them are like, no, 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 don't listen to them. God promised us the victory. So let's, let's follow the Lord in obedience. Well, Israel takes a, a nationwide vote, if you will. They decide we're not gonna follow God. Once again, evidence that you can take, uh, you can take a nationwide vote and a popularity vote doesn't always lead to the will of God. And so right here, they are voting not to follow the Lord, not to obey him. And then they rebel against the people who led them into the situation. They turn on Moses and Aaron. Numbers 14, verse one says that all the congregation have raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And then they say something ridiculous. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Is that really how they felt? No, they were begging God to deliver them from Egypt. It's just they're always going to find something to be upset about. They're always going to be angry about something. God has no words of commendation for this grumbling, stiff-necked people. <clears throat> Worse yet, Numbers 14.10 says, Then the congregation said to stone them. Stone who? The ones who got us into this mess, Moses and Aaron. Let's kill them. Let's throw rocks at them until they're dead. The Bible says that, uh, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. They were so stiff-necked, so stubborn, so disobedient, wouldn't follow the leaders that God gave them, and they tried to kill the leaders God sent to them. And God, like a middle school teacher in the middle of a fight, steps in between these kids and says, no, 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 you're not gonna kill these guys. I put Moses and I put Aaron amongst you to lead you for a reason. I'm not gonna let you kill them. And so God does not praise them. Instead, he skips over that entire generation of people. It's like when God is describing these people of faith, when God is giving commendation, he's praising their faith. He doesn't praise this generation. Not between the Red Sea and Jericho. 
Instead, we get a commendation of faith for a different generation of people, the people that weren't gonna die in the wilderness, the people who are going to trust God. And when we look here at what God praises about that generation's faith, we're gonna see what it is. And it, it, when it comes down to it, it's that they're willing to trust God. They're going to be obedient to the Lord. Faith obeys God. First thing we're gonna see here is that in obedience, faith obeys or obedience follows God's leaders. By faith, we obey God by following the leaders that God has given to us. Like it or not, God has always worked through leaders. I dare you to go back in the Bible and read a single instance where God did a mighty work without using a man or a woman that God has sent, a leader in your midst that God has sent to lead those people. It doesn't exist. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, uh, Jesus, the apostles, uh, coming out from the exile. You got Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah building the walls. Anytime God is going to do a great word of God, mark it down, there will always be a great leader that God sends, and he calls his people to follow the Lord by trusting the leader that God sent them. And so God works through leadership. Joshua chapter one, I want you to see the spirit of the people that God praises and listen to how they, listen to how their tunes change. They sound nothing like their parents. Joshua chapter one, verse 16. And the people, they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. These are people who are obedient to God by following the leaders that God had given them. That's, there's a reason that God is praising these people's faith. These are the people that God is praising in particular when they're finally willing to trust God by trusting the leaders that God has sent to them. Now, when we use the term obedience and obey, is that a popular term today? Do we like the word, do you like to obey? Do you intrinsically in your heart, do you enjoy obedience? Do you like paying taxes? Do you like following speed limits? You don't like to obey, I don't like to obey. In our flesh, we resist the idea of obedience. The word obey itself here in this text literally is a word that means to listen with the intention of following. The Chinese word for, that, for obey is ting song. It literally means listen, follow. And so the Chinese word is a very great depiction of what obedience is. It's a listening with the intention of following what you're about to hear. And so obedience is a posture of the heart. I have an intention to follow God by following the people that he has put before me. Parents, we've, we've recently sent our children off to school, much to the cheers of mothers and fathers everywhere. They love what we love our kids. Uh, sometimes we love them to be with teachers. And we'll tell them, you listen to your teachers, you follow your teachers. Uh, but teachers, when they get there, do all those children obey you? They're supposed to. Uh, they're supposed to listen, and they're supposed to follow what you say. But sure enough, you're going to give them a test, and what are the kids going to complain? You never told me that this was going to be on the test. You never said, did you say? You said it 15 times in four different languages, and the kids didn't get it. Is it because you were incapable of speaking clearly? No, it's because their hearts did not have a posture to obey. They were not listening with the intention of following. They were doing whatever they do in class. You know, they're on their phones. I hear kids are vaping in class. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff in class, everything but listening and following the teachers. They're supposed to, but they don't. 
And so that's what it means to obey, to listen and to follow. But the word obey in modern culture today doesn't have really great connotations for our, our culture. We don't like the word obey. I've actually had even churchgoers recoil at the idea of using the term obey. You might have struggled this morning to sing the song, Trust and Obey. I don't like that word. I don't like obey. And it conjures up these bizarre ideas. And usually because we, our flesh doesn't like obedience, we caricaturize obedience and we throw it to an extreme. Oh, it's like Hitler, you know, got me goose-stepping in, you know, in, in, in rhythm of the drums there to follow you. Or we have this idea of oh, some kind of cult Obedience leads to cult behavior, or we create a different caricature. We picture a Catholic nun with a ruler in her hand, you know, and, and we picture obedience and we caricaturize it as something filthy and awful and evil and, and cruel, you know, and, and I don't want, I don't want, I don't like obedience. And, and if I don't like to obey, why should I make my children obey? I've actually heard that from church going parents. Don't make my child obey. I don't want my child to be a robot. You know, or, or we'll be doing parenting training, uh, whether it's China or America, our, our flesh, our heart is the same. Speak a different language, our heart's the same. We recoil at the idea of making our children obey. And I've had parents in the parenting training. I don't want to train up my child that way. I don't like to obey. I don't want him to obey. I don't want to be a robot. I don't want my child to be a robot. I want them to think for themselves. And what they're really communicating is I want my child to live in active rebellion against authority. Obedience is something that God commands of all of us, doesn't he? Or does he? Are we commanded to be obedient people? We are. We don't like that word. It's a filthy, gross word. And I don't even like teaching about it because y'all aren't going to like me for teaching it, but it's in the Bible, so we're going to teach it. Uh, kids have to obey. Is there a Bible verse on something about kids obeying their parents somewhere? Ephesians 6, somewhere along there. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, which means you do it for God's sake. You may not like mom and dad, uh, teens. You may not appreciate your parents' rules, but why do you obey them? Because you agree with their rules? No, because the Lord gave you those parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because you agree with them. No, because it is right. You want to live a righteous life before God, you obey mom and dad. And more than that, it's not just enough to obey them. Hey, Billy, will you throw this in the trash? Fine, I'll throw this in the trash, all right. You know, what are we missing there? We're missing verse two. Honor your father and mother, right? It says this is the first commandment with a promise that, that your days may be long, that you may, or their days may be well, and that you may live long on the earth. It's a promise of God. If you learn to honor and obey your parents, you're gonna do a lot better in life than kids that dishonor and disobey their parents. Parents, we have one job with our kids. If you do nothing else, I don't care if your kid's an academic scholar, if you get one of those bumper stickers that says, I have a really smart kid and yours is dumb, one of those things. I don't care how smart your kid is or that he scored the touchdown in the Ashland football game and that he's the best Tomcat ever. What the most important thing is to God is, do you raise up your child to honor and obey you? It's important to God. If we don't do that, parents, we have missed out on the, the singular thing that God has given for us to do. In fact, God gives us warnings in Proverbs 30, 17, that if we don't raise children to both honor and obey us, it's going to set that child on a path for their future, won't it? That learning to honor and obey parents are the training wheels for that child to learn to honor and obey other authorities later. Proverbs 30, 17 says, the eye that mocks a father, okay, that's, that's honor, or dishonor. He says, and that scorns to obey a mother, that's obedience, honor and obey. What will happen? This is a great verse. Your little boys are gonna love this verse. They can't believe it's even in the Bible. 
it will be picked out by the ravens and the valley and eaten by the vultures. This is a pretty macabre verse, but it's in the Bible. What's he saying there? There's only one circumstance in which a Jew would ever have their eyes plucked out by an animal, and that's if they suffered capital punishment. You see, a Jew, they would naturally bury their dead because it was a picture of the seed that's put into the ground, and someday God will raise it into new life. It was believed all who followed God that they would, they would expect that resurrection. But if you were a criminal, you're guilty of a capital offense, part of that judgment against them is they would cast their body outside the city and, and just let the animals get to it. It was a picture that we don't believe that you're born again. We don't believe that you're a child of God, and so we're not gonna bury your, your body in the ground in hopes that God's gonna raise it up one day like a seed. No, we're gonna let the animals eat you, and it was a sign of judgment. God says the child that learned, that mocks and dishonors his parents, it doesn't have a bright future that he paints for your kid. Children learn to obey parents by obey, or, or other authorities in life by obeying the parents. If a child that doesn't learn how to honor and obey their parent will probably not do that well later. I mean, guys that commit capital offenses today didn't start out typically as really great, wonderful kids who honored and obeyed mom and dad. They started out as rebellious little children who didn't obey, they didn't honor mom and dad. And so the Bible warns us that there are consequences when children don't, are not taught to honor and obey parents. Is obedience just something we teach little kids? We teach them trust and obey, we sing that song, we move on, but thank God I'm a parent now, I can do anything I want. I can eat a whole sleeve of Oreos and guilt-free and mama can't tell me not to. You know, I can do anything I want. I mean, that's true rebellion when you can eat a whole package of Oreos. That, that, we, are, we don't live that way, do we? we? As adults, do we still have to learn to obey? Eh, that's a begrudging yes, but I agree. Uh, sadly, we do have to obey. I gotta pay taxes. I gotta, I gotta do speed limits. I gotta follow the rules. I gotta walk within the lines. I don't get to jaywalk. We all gotta obey things. As adults, we obey in many areas. Uh, adults, were called to obey God. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, what will we also do? You'll keep my commandments. Can we honestly say we love God if we live disobediently to what we know to be true? We cannot. Jesus says, that is the evidence of an unbeliever. You can't say, I love God, I wanna go to heaven someday, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna live disobediently to what I know to be true in the word of God. So adults, we obey God. Uh, B, adults, we obey government. <sighs> Which government? Um, understand this first about government. Government is an institution that God created. God, it, started, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, okay? All the way back to creation, the first families. After the murder of Abel, what does God say? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man, collectively, not an individual, not vigilantism, by man, collectively, his blood shall be shed. This is the institution of human government. And their first institution was to protect and preserve human life and to bring about justice. And so God created government. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that tells us we need as adults to be obedient to the government God places us under? There's plenty of verses. I'll simply give you Romans 13. It's very, very clear here. It says, let every person... So there's no exceptions. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Subject means we line ourselves up underneath them in an orderly fashion. Let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Let's pause there. Do you have a problem with that verse? 
spiritually speaking, no, because you know you have to say yes because it's in the Bible. Uh, but does that give us some problems? Is there any government that is not instituted by God according to Romans 13? There is not. What about the bad authorities? Did God put them in place too? He did. You can see it in the Bible. There are times that God used evil authorities doing evil things to accomplish his will. The example we gave last week was Nebuchadnezzar. What did he get called? My servant. The evil things he was doing, the wickedness of the Assyrians, they were doing what God asked. So even when we have an evil government, <clears throat> often when we see an evil government, it's because the nation has already departed from God and God is bringing judgment upon those people. When you have an evil government that is, in the, in the Bible, the government is described as one of two things. It's either a tree or a beast. A tree is something that is large and beautiful. It provides shade and protection and comfort and food and security and peace. The other government is a beast. That's why the, the governments of Revelation in the tribulation period, they're described as the beast. These beasts, they're hungry animals who want to consume their people for their own selfish purposes. They're driven only by their lusts and their desires. And so often when you see God give a nation an evil government, one that is oppressing or harming its people, it's, it, it's for any number of purposes, but God will often do that as a judgment to his people as he did uh, in the period of the book of the Judges. And so he says, therefore, who, going back to Romans 13, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, the ones that God's instituted, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist incur judgment that God wants us in as far as we can to obey our earthly authorities, the governments that he's given to us, obey them because we understand that God put them there. Proverbs 21.1, remember, says the king's heart is where? It's in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, God will turn that heart where he wishes. And so we can, why should I trust my government? Why should I obey my government? Because God says that he is still in control of that government and like the rivers of water, he will turn it where he will. And so to trust our government is to trust God insofar as they don't ask us to disobey God. That is the higher authority. We'll see, we also obey God's leaders. There's leaders that we get in all different realms of our life. One of those areas is in the church. Are there leaders in the church? There are. There's always been leaders. I don't care if they were priests, high priests in the Old Testament, if they were apostles in the foundation of the church or uh, you know, pastors and elders you know, in the rest of the New Testament church. God has always had leaders even within his church. Are we called to obey and or follow those leaders? Hebrews 13, 17. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey, we know what that means. Submit, we know what that means. To line up under, to follow, to go along with, to support, to help, to aid. Which leaders? The ones that are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account to God. He's talking about spiritual leadership. He says to obey your leaders, submit to them, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Is it possible for a spiritual leader to serve in a church and be groaning? I've met some of them. I go to pastor's conferences. I gotta tell you right now, I'm not serving with groaning here. I'm a very happy man. Y'all are good to us. You have been very faithful to, to follow God's leading and direction. God is leading you to lead us in different areas as well. You've been very kind. Uh, your, your words to us have been very supportive and helpful. I wanna thank you for that. Not all my brothers get that in a church. 
I talk to pastors at pastor conferences and they just, they grieve in their hearts and they are weeping over their congregations that they desperately desire to lead them in the mission of God and their people won't do it. They are, they're stiff-necked and they're digging in their heels and these guys, they're thinking, I don't know. Maybe I'm not the man to be in ministry. Maybe I ought to go sell insurance. Maybe I ought to go work in a funeral home. A lot easier to bury a brother than to lead them. You know? so, and, and so they go into these fields. It's why we have so many more empty pulpits than we do pastors to fill them. And so he says, don't make their job harder than it needs to be. Don't make them serve with groaning and just calling out to God and saying, oh, God, help me. He says, that's of no benefit to you. Also, we all, uh, obey leaders uh, on the job. Any of you guys gainfully employed? <laughs> Most of you. Do you have to obey your boss? Oh, you do. Uh, we, I don't enjoy it any more than anybody else does. We all have authority that we follow, bosses that we gotta lead. Uh, we've got to obey our masters. In that sense, First Peter 2.18 says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. And it's not just simply talking about slaves. You need to understand what a Hebrew slave was. It was an indentured servant. It was a contracted service, okay? I'm gonna work for you for a period of time. You're gonna provide me this and I'll provide you with this service. And he talks to those who are in this position. He says, be subject to them, not only to the good and gentle, but also to what kind of boss? The unjust, it's the Greek word scolios. It's a gross sounding word. It sounds like scoliosis, doesn't it? Curvature of the spine. And there's a reason for that. We get it from this word. And so God is saying, be, be reverent, be kind, be submissive, be humble toward and obedient toward the good bosses, even the ones who are crooked, warped. In so doing, we show that we're sons and daughters of God. We can follow leadership because we can trust that leader uh, to God. Remember David when he trusted God with even Saul? Saul, this is the brother who threw spears at David. That's rough. This is the man who chased David in the wilderness with the intention to kill him. David had it in his power to kill this leader, and he would not. Why? What did David say? I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. This person, he recognized that if there's a leader in my life, even a bad leader, Saul was not a great leader, David wouldn't raise his hands to oppose and fight, resist, or to kill, harm, or shame this leader because that was God's anointed. This is the person that God has put in my life, and David recognized this, and he waited in God's timing. The same man would write later in Psalm 119.90, all things are your servants. Everything in my life, they're here to serve the purposes of God, even if it brings pain and difficulty into my life. That there are leaders that God leads into my life, that, that God will transfer his authority to them, and we are to follow them. We are to follow God by following the leaders that he has given to us. It's sort of like if you ever want to go out on a date. Parents, do you still do that? You got kids, you still take your kids out on your wife on dates. Uh, it's not much fun if you've ever tried it. I did it one time and it ended in tears, no lie. I brought a kid on a date thinking that would be okay because uh, I didn't want to pay the babysitter. And we, we literally wept in the parking lot and went home. And so uh, don't, I don't recommend it. But what you'll do is you'll take that little kid and you'll take him to Mamma Papa's house, won't you? And before you leave that little kid, you know his fleshly tendencies. And so you will transfer your authority to Mamma Papa. At least we did. We'd drop them off with the grandparents. We'd say, hey, you're gonna obey Nana and Papa. You're gonna follow what they say. If you don't, they have been given the power to discipline when necessary. We have transferred authority. And so now that child may not appreciate Nanapop. They may not enjoy them. They may not agree with their decisions. They may not like what they're getting fed for dinner. Will they follow Nana and Papa? Oh, they're going to. 
Because if they don't, they know there's gonna be a price to pay. Because we have transferred that authority to that leader and this child is going to obey mom and dad by obeying the leader that we have put that child under. And God does the same thing for us often in our life that there are leaders, every leader in our life, whether it's on the job, in the church, or government, we follow them as we, as we recognize that they are from God. Are there limitations to obedience? Of course there are. There's an abuse of power. There's an abuse of obedience uh, by governing authorities. There can be abuse of obedience even within the home. You know, Ananias did an evil thing. Sapphira submitted to him, followed him, and they both got put to death, okay? It's an example of when not to follow your husband's leadership, when it's into sin. If our government tells us to do something that's wrong or evil, do we follow that? If they tell us to stop preaching Jesus, do we, do we obey our government? No, we don't. Why not? Because there's a higher authority that we follow. In that circumstance, we get to preach Acts 5.29, it's where the disciples, they were beaten with rods and strictly commanded not to preach the name of Jesus, and they did it anyway, and they said, in this case, it is better to obey God than man. So we don't get to say that just anytime we disagree with our leaders, but when our leaders are leading us into sin or to disobey God's word, we gotta follow God. But that's the only circumstance. Otherwise, we follow. Number two, obedience, it flows from our view of God. Before God, before we'll obey God uh, fully, we have to have a very good view of who God is. Often you'll see in the Bible, before God asks a leader to do something really that challenges their faith, he'll often reveal himself to them, won't they? Moses at the burning bush, uh, Jesus to his disciples, Jesus to Paul before he sent him out. Uh, God wrestled, Jacob wrestled with God. God appears to Abraham. God appears to Jacob. God appears to Moses. God appears today even here to Joshua. Before he asked Joshua to obey greatly, he wants Joshua to have a great view of, of who God is. And so we see him here in Joshua 5, in verse 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. I'm not for any of you people. I'm not taking sides. I'm doing my will. And uh, Joshua falls on his face to the earth and worshiped him and says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Where did we see that last? Take off the sandals from your feet where you're standing is holy ground. It's when God revealed himself to Moses. You remember that, the burning bush. And so this is not simply an angel appearing to Joshua. This is a pre-incarnate Christ who is appearing to him. Also, we know it's not an angel because this being here accepts worship. And so this is God revealing himself to Joshua, giving Joshua a very full view of who he is before he asked Joshua to trust him and to obey in a very, very difficult way to obey God. But this is what God does to us. He reveals himself to us. And I would say this, that our obedience to God is fully depend upon, dependent upon our theology. It's how we view God. Our obedience to God is fully dependent on how we view God. If your God is big and your God is present and your God is mighty and he is holy and he's everywhere present to you and you are impressed with God, you will follow him to a T, won't you? 
It's how some of your brothers at work are. Do they work a little differently when they know that the boss is right there and they're around and have the power to fire them? I've seen it before. Christians, we're not supposed to do that, to work as men pleasers, the Bible says, trying to be seen by men. We work out of faith to serve God. But some people, that's how they work. You know, Burger King, I've seen them. They're just kind of sitting around. The boss comes around like, do-do-do-do, look at me, cleaning up my counter, being really, you know, very hardworking, diligent. You know, I installed fire alarms, and I'd be working, I'd look down there, and the guys are playing electrical tape bowling. You ever seen that? They, they line up these four inch square boxes, and they're rolling electrical tape down, and they're just having fun. The boss shows up on the job site, and all of a sudden, they're the most dutiful servants, and they're going up and down, look how hard I'm working here on this ladder. And, and they just become great workers because they have a very imminent view of this boss who has power over them. The Christian, our boss isn't visible to us, but by faith, we believe he is here with us. And so I would say our obedience is entirely dependent upon our view of God, our theology, what you believe to be true. In fact, disobedience is always a result of improper theology. It's an improper view of God, that our disobedience is a theological problem. Your God is not big to you. He is big, but you don't think he is. Your God is not great to you. He is great, but he's not great to you. And so when we disobey God, it's a theological problem. I don't see God rightly. God is revealing himself here to Joshua, giving him a full view of his strength, his glory, letting him know that he is on holy ground, and it's going to lead Joshua to a place of tremendous obedience. And he's going to need it too, isn't he? Because where is he about to attack? Jericho. What do you know about Jericho? It's the mightiest. I mean, the first place that Joshua is going to take is the mightiest city in all the land of Canaan. It's this mighty Jericho. And we talk about the walls of Jericho because there wasn't just a singular wall. A lot of times, kids' cartoons, they just picture some giant like castle with these giant walls around them. That's not actually how it was set up. We know how Jericho was set up because uh, we got a photo here. Uh, Archaeology has found remnants of the walls of Jericho, and we can discern certain things about Jericho. Isn't that amazing, by the way? Archaeology is a Christian's best friend. You're never going to come across archaeology that goes against the Bible. It only has ever supported the Bible. And in this case, we have archaeological evidence of the ancient city of Jericho, and we see that there are walls. And so we have this retaining wall at the bottom that was 15 feet high, just that wall by itself. That's enormous. And then you have this other wall built upon it, which was another 26 feet high. And then in between that wall, you had this, uh, this doesn't picture it quite as well, but you had this this kind of sloped surface leading up to the remaining parts of the city that led to another wall that stood from the ground level 46 feet off the ground. That is an enormous, gigantic, impressive, it's, 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 it's much taller than even this church building that we have here. It's this very, very impressive structure, and it went all the way around the city. Furthermore, this was considered uh, an impossible city to conquer for a for another reason. It had an internal spring in the city. Why is that important? A place of abundant fresh water. Because the only way you could possibly try to take this city, humanly speaking, would be to siege the city. You would surround it. You would cut off its supply lines. Pretty soon, they wouldn't have water, fresh water to drink. Disease would take over. They get sick. Now they're weak. You attack them, and you can take over the city. They run out of food and water. The bad thing is, we got Jericho here. They got a fresh water spring. You can't get past the walls, humanly speaking, not with the technology they had at the time. Furthermore, you look at the time of the year, 
that they were actually attacking Jericho, do you know they had just brought in all their crops? You know what that means? They've got food to spare. We can outlast you guys. We have more food in here than y'all have out there in the wilderness. And if you remember the story, uh, that when they went in to take Jericho, what happened to the manna? The moment they set foot in the land of Canaan, God's free lunches dried up. So they don't have food. And so God is leading them to attack an impossible city at an impossible time using impossible tactics. They're not going to siege this city. We all know how this story ends. Number three, we see that obedience doesn't judge God's word. And what I mean by that is we don't look at God's word, read it, and go, huh, that's interesting. I don't think it'll work, though, so I think I'm going to try something else. We don't judge God's word. We read God's word, we discern its meaning, and we choose to follow, and we trust the outcome to the Lord. Well, here, Joshua doesn't question how God's going to do it. He just takes it by faith that God will give this land into their hands. If we don't, he now becomes a judge because God clearly just revealed. You know, he says, I literally, he says, I have given Jericho into your hands. Now, was Jericho already delivered to him? No, Joshua had to take it by faith. I have to trust God that what he's about to lead me to do will lead to Jericho being in my hands. I'm not going to judge God's word. James 4 talks about uh, judging God's word as well. He says that if we aren't a doer of the law, in other words, we don't just obey because God says it, we become a judge of the law. James 4.11 says if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. When we disobey God's word, we become a judge of God's word. We have determined that that's not a good way for me. I've seen it many times when we've been teaching people about godly finances, godly parenting, godly this, godly that, and people look at God's word and they go, mm, yeah, I tried, but it didn't work. What's wrong with looking at God's word saying I tried it and it didn't work? You have judged God's word and you've judged it. By the way, we don't obey God's word because it gives us immediate results. That's stimulus and response. We obey God's word by faith and trust that it leads to our best outcome. That's faith. But when you look at God's word and say, eh, I tried it, it doesn't really work, don't really like God's way, I got a better way, we're back to Eve in the garden who began to doubt God. Did God really say? God, and Satan's telling her, you know, God's trying to withhold something good from you. He, he knows the day that you eat it, you're going to become like him, and that's why he doesn't want you to have it. So I want you to doubt God and sin, and that's why we all sin. It's a lack of proper theology. We doubt God, and we become a judge of God, and we become a judge of God's word. I won't obey God's word because I, I don't agree with it. I think I know better. Now, this is going to be hard for Joshua to obey God's word because contemplate the battle strategy God is about to give Joshua, and you tell me if this is how you would go about conquering that mighty city of Jericho. Joshua 6, verse 3, you shall march around the city. Okay, first of all, does that sound foolish to anybody? If you're going to attack a city like this, you don't march around it. What do you do? You find its weak point, and you hit that weak point. You don't march around the city. Guys firing arrows at you the whole time. Hey, look at these idiots marching around the city. But that's what God asked for. And he says, don't do it one time, but how many? You're going to do it six days in a row. And, oh, it doesn't get easier the seventh day. You got these priests out there and they got their ram's horns, they're blowing, you're carrying a gold box in front of you and you're just gonna trust God that this is going to lead to your best possible outcome. He says, and when they make a long blast of the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout, shout with a great shout and just trust me on this, the walls of the city will fall down flat. 
Does that sound like a good battle strategy? I'm not a strategist here, uh, but I don't think you're going to find this in Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Uh, shoot, you wouldn't do this in a pillow fight, just marching around, hey, I'm going to defeat him. You're going to get clobbered. And here God is asking them to do that with this mighty city, the mightiest one that's out there. March around the city, allow them to mock you and taunt you, shoot arrows at you. But just trust me, walking around and blowing horns and trumpets and yelling is going to bring the wall down. Understand what God was asking Joshua to do here. God is asking Joshua, when did you blow trumpets and shout? After you've taken the city. God is asking Joshua to declare victory over the city before it's even happened. Would that be hard to do? Would that be hard to do if this is your first act of leadership? Remember, Joshua has just been put into leadership. His first big act of leadership, his first grand military decision is going to be doing some marching around a wall. Do you think that might make him feel a little bit nervous and want to judge God's tactics and do something different because he knows he's going to hear it from the people if they disagree with the strategy? This took faith to obey God in this. Yet he's going to obey God because faith without obedience is just knowledge. Faith without obedience is just knowledge. God doesn't praise men for the knowledge. In fact, Corinthians says knowledge puffs up. A whole bunch of knowledge about who God is just makes you proud. But if you don't act on that faith, you're not doing that faith. Faith without works, James says, is dead. Don't tell me you have faith if you're not acting on it. Don't tell me you have faith if you're not doing it. If you're not obeying God, don't tell me about your faith. It says that's dead faith. It says, that, can that faith save him? The, the answer was no. Number four, obedience always leads to our greatest good. How does the story of Jericho end? With Israel being defeated and laughed at and scorned for centuries? No, we sang the song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. We know this story. I think it's interesting, by the way, if you actually look at how Jericho is built, for when the walls fall down, what's it gonna do? Because of the incline, the way it's built, it's gonna create a ramp straight up the city. God tumbling those walls down his way is gonna literally give them a highway all the way around the city to attack where, when, and how they want. Well, we know how the story ends. Chapter six and verse 20, it says, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. They declared victory. They trusted God long before they knew what the outcome was gonna be. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, they shouted the great shout, the wall fell down flat, just like God said so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. This is just amazing. When we see God's people doing things God's way, it always leads to God's best for us, doesn't it? When we obey God's word, it always leads to God's will for our life. Is that a fair statement to say? God's word always leads to God's will. Because God's word is his will. A lot of times when we talk about God's will, we want something specific. Should I buy this car? Should I marry this girl? You know, should I move to this city? Should I get this job? Should I go to this college? What is God's will? He's, he's revealed it to us. If you live obediently to this will right here that God has made clear to us, the rest of God's will falls into line. If you're walking obediently with him, love God and do what you want. Love God and do what God places on your heart to do because when it comes down to it, this is the part that God is concerned that you're following. Not whether you bought the exact right car, went to the exact right school, married the exact right girl and did all this right stuff. 
He's concerned, are you living obediently? You do that, delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He's gonna lead you to desire the right things if God is your first priority and your heart is to obey him. Well, how are we doing with obedience? Are we okay with it? Do we understand it's important, it's, it's necessity? I mean, I got trained into obedience when I was a little kid. Back then, obedience was not something we got scared of as a culture. In fact, we sang about it. I used to go to Awanas every week as a child, and we would sing a song called the Obedience Song. Don't worry, I'm not gonna have us sing this today. I don't wanna embarrass myself. Uh, but you ever sing this song? Uh, look at the lyrics of the song for just a second. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly as the Lord commands doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately, and joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. And in case you didn't get it the first time, they make you spell it out. They're gonna teach you, they're gonna teach you obedience one way or the other. Now, when you see this song, what's going through your heart? Are you frustrated that this song even exists? <laughs> Are you annoyed that people would actually teach their children how to obey? Let me tell you, if you, if you struggle with the word obey and obedience, that thought is not informed by scripture. If you struggle with the word obey and obedience, you're not getting that idea from God. Where's that idea coming from? It's coming from the spirit of this world, isn't it? Does the world like to obey? I mean, what kind of songs is the world writing? Are they writing O, B, E, D, I? Are they, are they, is the world writing songs about obedience? No, they're writing songs like, you know, slap your mama and shoot the police, you know, and break things down. That's the world's songs today. And it didn't get any better in our younger generations, did it? I remember working on a job site with my dad. He was a, he, he was a builder. And uh, he always listened to Charles Swindoll on the radio. And uh, he'd, he'd get inspired. And I always knew when the radio turned off that my dad had a sermon for me. And uh, I remember one time he was sermonizing on the job site to me, and it turned into a Broadway musical. It, <clears throat> my dad just started singing to me. He's like, you know what? Our flesh, our human flesh, we want to rebel against God, and we want to rebel against authority. He says, it's like a song. And I knew something was coming up, and he, he began to sing the song of his people. Uh, <clears throat> from the 60s, there was a song that started out, and he would, he would start dancing. He'd get this rhythm going. He starts, get your motor running. You, know. you had to know my dad. And out on the highway, and he'd just really get into it, <clears throat> looking for adventure <clears throat> and whatever comes my way. And he would go through that, and he'd look me in the face, and he'd point at me like a true nature's child, like, like he's preaching Romans, you know. He's preaching Steppenwolf, you know. Like a true nature's child. You're a child of the flesh. You're a child of the world. This rebellious spirit we feel in us, he says, like a true nature's child, we were born. And how does that song end? We were born, that's right. I wouldn't dare ask you to finish Romans 5.8. But somehow I knew y'all be knowing the verses that born to be wild because that's in our heart, isn't it? That's how we're born. That's the song of this world. The world praises independence and fierceness and stubbornness and I'm gonna fight for what I want. I'm gonna take what I want and I don't listen to anybody. I'm, not, I'm gonna stick it to the man, whoever the man is. We're just not gonna follow him. That's the spirit of this world. That's the spirit that engages and ignites the hearts that are darkened to the truths of God. What does God commend and praise in Hebrews chapter 11? 
He praises an obedient heart. The hearts that go to Joshua and said, hey, we realize these people didn't always follow you, but we'll follow you. Wherever you go, Joshua, we're gonna go. Whatever you command us to do, we will obey you. We will obey you even as we obeyed Moses. We're gonna follow. The heart of obedience is what God praises here in Hebrews chapter 11, that we trust God enough to do life his way. And we trust God even with the leaders he puts in our life. Even the bad bosses that we have at work as Christians, we're respectful about them. We may, not, we may or may not like our government locally or nationally, but guess what? We don't trash them and badmouth them and dishonor them. Why? Because we recognize, even though they may be doing wicked things, this is somebody that God has in my life for a reason. All authority comes from God, and those that have been instituted have been instituted by God. Romans 13. Why do we obey God? Is it because we trust those people? No, it's because we trust the God behind those people. We trust that God is working all things together for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Friends, let's earn the commendation of God, if you will, Let's receive his words of praise today by being a heart that's not stiff-necked, but one that's willing to just move at the slightest touch of the master's rod. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for this word. God, this is a hard word. It's a hard word for myself to, to read it and to preach it, God, because my heart is my flesh that is still yet unredeemed. Lord, you have saved me in my, in my spirit. My identity before you is right. You have given me the righteousness of Christ. Uh, but Lord, in my flesh, like Paul says, dwells no good things. He said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. God, we wrestle the spirit against the flesh. God, I'm praying that you will help us to wrestle against that fleshly desire to sing the song of this world, to be a true nature's child, to be born to be wild, to be this free spirit doing what we want, when we want, how we want. God, deliver us from that attitude that that somehow leads to our best good. God, show us that when we obey you, that these are biblical principles, that we find our best good in you when we are living obedient to your word. God, may we be people who trust you and not judges of your word. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.